Hey, Joe. So you've got some sniffles. You're a little yeah. sick. Can you tell? I, I, I can now. As the conversation wore on, I think your, your various cavities of your head um, <laughs> sort of resonated a little differently. Did, I hope I wasn't too grumpy. Was not I, at all. You weren't the least was bit Was I grumpy. surly at all? No, I mean, no, I, not even remotely. That's not, you don't have a bit of that in you. you oh, know that. well, because I, well, no, I feel like, you know, you know how you feel like you've got a weight on your head and, yeah. and I'm just trying not to cough the whole time. Right. But you did great. we're back in home headquarters. Yep. World Argument Headquarters, folks. World Headquarters. Not and where we thought we would be today, but it is where we are. And it worked out. It worked great. Worked out and had a great there conversation. There were some glitches and we had some Skypey glitches. Yeah, I think I might be able to fix that, but we'll see. Yeah. If not, there'll be a little, you know, a little thing there. So no problem. We've gotten a little bit of feedback. We're not going to talk about it today, but uh, right. we're going to let it build up a little bit more. We'll do a little mailbag, uh, I think. You, and you can get in touch with us at oralargumentpodcast at gmail.com, oralargumentpodcast at gmail.com, or you can go to our website, oralargument.org, where you find all the shows, including all our past guests yep. and, and topics. On the Go- Twitter, it's at Oral Argument. Um, but, but on the website, I was going to say you can hit contact and you can get oh, in touch right. through, sure. through that, and, and which is, you know, a lot of people are, are doing that now. Interesting. Namely, people who are trying to sell generic drugs. <laughs> but 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 if you if you have a non noisy uh, thing to add that uh, you can use that contact form there or just or just email us or yeah at oral argument on Twitter or we also have that Facebook thing so yeah many ways to reach out yeah and we love to hear from folks anything else nope you always say that I'm I'm waiting for that one day where you you say today's the day I got this big thing <laughs> I got this big surprise yeah I think I think I'll save that. For the day when I'm like, I'm out. <laughs> We're not doing this anymore. This is the last one. Oh boy! I, I think I'll save it. for You're that. scaring people. Uh, no, no, it's no, no, no. Uh, I don't. You're mean scaring to. me because I'm feeling like I'm not going to know until I feel like you're going to pull out the rug from under me. All well, of that's a true. I mean, I, that's absolutely <laughs> rest assured on that one. That's too. That is too delectable. Uh, uh, a little. Um, ah, ah. Okay. Leave, leave that in first. Second. Um. Uh, of course, I'm going to pull the rug out from under you. That's uh, how could I not do that? It's too fun not to. Hey, this is this is Christian. Hey, how's it going? Uh, so, thank you, Chris Newman, for joining us. Hey, thank you for inviting me. This was great. Uh, Christian, uh, you are an honorary Johnny, but Chris and I are actual Johnnies. <laughs> oh, is that right? Uh, he was he was a year behind me, mm-hmm. and uh, and he's great. Yeah. So I'm so glad we're getting a chance to talk to I him about this I should have figured paper. that out reading this, reading this paper. You know, the, <laughs> it's, the, the only people, you know, well, I, I won't say the only people, but uh, it's not surprising that, a, that someone who went to St. John's like you did, Joe, would, would share my interest in kind of Hofeldian legal theory and, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and, and kind of detailed kind of a little, a little bit of formalism, a, a whole lot of thinking, you know, um, let's, let's get this thing figured out at the root level. That seems to be the core of the Johnny. Uh, yeah, there's something to that. Get it close to the metal. Yeah. I think that's true. I mean, I think that's informed a lot of the way that I've approached a lot of my scholarship is sort of, you know, as a Johnny, you get used to reading works by people who are sort of trying to make sense of the world from first principles. And so you're, you're sort of comfortable in that realm. In fact, you're uncomfortable if you feel you're jumping into a problem while you've skirted those bases. And so you feel a need to sort of try to try to make a consistent worldview, which can be paralyzing because it's a daunting task to try to create an entire worldview that's <laughs> consistent from, from premises up. But so you have to sort of figure out, okay, what piece of this 
can I uh, can I get good enough for government work such that I feel comfortable then thinking about it? You know, and you yeah. also have to figure out how to talk to other people in the legal academy. And you know, from I, I came at law as a mathematician and and had a kind of an amateur interest in philosophy as well. So I've always had an interest in first principles, but but kind of through the lens of a mathematician. And so I came to law like that. And you know, so so much of law is accessible to someone with with a kind of a mathematical approach to to the world, uh, just as it is with all kinds of other approaches to the world. Uh, but it can be hard to figure out like how to how to talk about first principles in law and how to how to um, how to kind of you know express yourself in ways that others can understand uh, is I find a challenge. No, indeed, and it. In fact, one of the uh, perverse things about uh, my my sort of developed interest in Hofeld is that I would uh, I'd probably have a much easier time of it if I were a European legal scholar, as I've learned, because in the U.S., even though he was a, an American professor, an American thinker, he's in in you know, the whole European sort of continental philosophical and the way that they approach law over there. Nobody would ever question why it's really important to think through things in Hofeldian terms, whereas here. The first five questions are always, who cares about this? Why is this helpful? <laughs> right. How does it get me to my model of the efficiency calculus? Right. <laughs> right. You know, so, right. Well, that's just at my school, I guess. <laughs> no, no, I think that's, that's all. I mean, you know, it, and, and part of it is the student um, law review system and kind of what they expect to see published in journals. And and part of it is, I think, uh, we've talked about this on the show before. I mean, so so part of it, I think, is good, right? It's this impatience with something which makes no difference it does serve some purpose. It serves some grounding. It keeps it keeps law accessible to the generalist. There there is some. I don't want to overstate it because I, you know, uh, but but I do think there there are some um, uh, some positives in in that. Sure, sure. I mean, I tend to think of law sort of as falling within the realm of what I'll call applied philosophy. Right. And you can't leave out the applied part. Right. right. If, you, if you leave out the applied part and you're just doing pure theory, at a certain point, you're not really doing law because law is precisely about how do you take abstract theories of justice and make them applicable to a concrete world with, you know, specific problems of costs and administration and human beings having to make the system work. That's what I find kind of fun about it is that, you know, yeah, theory is important because you have to you have to have some underlying grounding to what you're thinking about but ultimately you got to make it work in the real world or you're not doing a law yeah you got to make it work but part of making it work is to look at a, a set of cases and or, or look at a particular set of policies and, and ask again anew with fresh eyes like why do we do it this way why couldn't it be some other way and then part of that the reason why i think you know conceptual analysis of the sort that i'm doing in this paper and that i do in you know a fair number of my papers is I don't even think of conceptual analysis necessarily as quote unquote theory, because in fact, law is a it's a practical enterprise in which the tools that we use to get the job done are concepts. Mm -hmm. What judges are doing when they're deciding cases is basically taking some concepts out of their toolbox and trying to decide how do things fit into them. And so in a certain sense, trying to clarify and hone your your concepts in a legal setting is like sharpening your saw or, you know, maintaining your tools for any other tradesman. So, I mean, I, I think, you know, and what Hofeld was good for, I mean, I, I just participated in a whole conference at Yale on the 100th anniversary of Hofeld, and there's a whole book coming out with various things that we've written um, about his legacy and, you know, various facets of it. But, I mean, I think 
Hofeld was had had his flaws as well and has had some pernicious effects on the law, but his, his great virtue is that he was about trying to make the tools clear. And he was pointing out areas where we have certain words that have a fair amount of baggage and have a fair amount of ambivalences to their meaning. And sometimes you need to have other tools that are a little bit more precise for the job you're doing. And in legal analysis and in analyzing or describing a set of positive jural relations, it's helpful to have tools that are actually suited to the task. And he tried to provide some. And I've found them useful in some of the problems that I've tried to think about. Well, let's let's let people let's give people some grounding in in Hofeld, and uh, I'll, I'll link up to. I've got part of my legal theory one hundred and one thing that I put online, um, the series of podcasts and the readings that I gave for my legal theory students. One of one of the readings is Hofeld, and I go through in there some kind of elementary explanations of Hofeld and and kind of take people through the paper. I want to animate, before we do a little Hofeld, I want to animate the, the sort of the background copyright concern sure. and, and, and sort of debates a bit in, in popular life about uh, copyright and control and who's in control of, uh, of things based on, on uh, how copyright is working in our, in our system. And, you know, you reference, um, uh, it, it, Tom Bell, I think, early in the paper, and it reminded me that I, I feel like I saw the two of you give sort of competing debate presentations at some event. Um, like I saw a YouTube video of that or something. Yeah, that was a Cato thing when um, on his book, uh, his book called Intellectual Privilege. And does this paper kind of arise out of your experience in having that conversation with him? Um, not. It's not primarily motivated by that. I mean, I suppose you could say that um, yeah, that's, I mean, he's not the only one to have, you know, taken the position that he does that I sort of critique a bit in this paper. Right. But I mean, certainly that's, you know, that whole set of debates is certainly one of the things that animates my thinking here. That's fair enough to say, because in effect, the, the core of the one of the key cores of the debate, you know, that I was having with Tom, you know, Tom, like me, is coming out of Tom is a very similar, if you will, ideological valence to myself in that he's broadly speaking you know, sort of a libertarian, pro-common law, pro-property rights kind of guy. But it's very interesting that even within that general set of priors, there's very divergent views about the legitimacy of IP. And so he takes the view that IP is basically a derogation from legitimate common law property interests. And I was sort of taking the other side. And that's sort of what I'm... So in a certain sense, yes, you could regard this paper as sort of a, um, a follow-on to part of my debate with Tom, but I wouldn't say that the, the, I think I probably would have ultimately written something like this, even if I hadn't been involved in that particular debate. What a fascinating two by two box we could have if we had Tom on here too, because, you know, I'm not at all libertarian and and, Uh am hostile to IP rights. And then we've got Joe, who's not at all libertarian, but is, I don't know if you're, you're not hostile to IP rights. No, uh, I'm, but I'm also, I'm probably not as enthusiastic about them as, as Chris is. Mm -hmm. Uh, So yeah, it would be, it would be the two by two box uh, is the most awesome device for thinking and learning ever. Mm. <laughs> just gonna, I'm just going to put that out there. When when I the glee I experienced when I turned the page in this paper and saw a two by two box, you have no idea. I was like, this paper, I thought it couldn't get any better. And it just got even better. So what's what, what's what's the what's the um, copyright motivation you want to flag before we talk about Hofeld? Well, I think Chris just did. I mean, the fact the the concern out there that um, that copyright has become strong in a way that uh, makes it so that people can't do the things they would naturally want to do with things they feel they own. So the move to digital ebooks, 
um, digital files for songs. It used to be I could sell a book that I bought at the bookstore, and now if I buy an ebook from an ebook store, like can I sell it? And that sort of dispute. But uh, right, with an intuition more. for a lot of people that it sort of feels like you should be able to, right? Because there's a there's a continuity. The continuity that seems salient is that it's a book. Um, of course, there's a very there's a discontinuity, which is also salient, which is it's a digital file, <laughs> and you could send someone a, another instantiation of that file or or get their hard drive to have an instantiation of it, um, while you still preserve your own, and 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 that's also very salient and makes it very different. Mm-hmm. From a print book. So there's sort of these competing intuitions about what's fair and, and good and what's not. And if you think law should do something to think about and address what most people perceive to be pretty fair, uh, this is worrying that there are these disconnects going on in the conversation. Certainly more to think about. But Chris's paper here is is so. So this is the this is a um, a motivating example and an example uh, that he uses for the theory in this in this paper. But the theory is much much broader. Um, of, of use privileges, invested use privileges sure. than, uh, than, than copyright. It just provides a kind of useful, it says, hey, you know, one way of thinking about this tough problem that people are disagreeing about is to go back, <laughs> again, to first principles like we started talking about and, and think anew about what we, what we think property ownership is all about. Yeah. And that's another debate it seems to intersect with is the debate about uh, is property mostly about the right to exclude other people from your stuff or is it mostly about your right to use your stuff the way you want to? Or some mix of those two things? Are they analytically separable? Right. Are they experientially separable? Um, so it's, and that's, of course, a much deeper thing that, as you say, Christian, yeah. kind of goes across many fields. Yeah, I've been spending a, a few weeks here already on in property class on this. Yes. Right. And that point that you just raised, uh, Joe, is, is that's more the motivation for this paper because, you know, I, I, you know, I came into this game sort of as a a copyright scholar is with the idea of becoming a copyright scholar, you should say, but because of the fact that I have this sort of, you know, property, the, the, the sort of classical liberal worldview that I do, it, it did make me question early on. I mean, I'm drawn to topics where my priors are in conflict because that's where I think the really hard thinking gets done. And so I really have been struggling my whole career with this question. Okay, what should I, given what I think my priors are, what should I think about IP? Should I view IP, as a lot of libertarians do, as a illegitimate government monopoly that's just a form of rent-seeking and that's derogating from common law property rights? Or should I think what Locke thought, which is that, no, actually property in I, not in ideas but in intellectual productions is based on very similar philosophical underpinnings to all property rights, and the question is simply one of calibrating it properly. And so I've, you could say that I've, you know, using that as my motivational starting point to try to figure out what is the right way to think about this and to what extent, you know, are the analogies between traditional forms of property and IP useful, valid, invalid, all of that, you know, to what extent are they family, family similarities and practical differences. And so coming at this paper, you know, this whole debate between the right to exclude and the right to use, I think, is central to um I think it's central to sort of the normative underpinnings of property law, because I think when property gets a bad rap, rightly so, is when it's just about a right to exclude. When pro- when the right to exclude gets too divorced from the owner's valid interests in productive use, that's when it looks like just a robber baron sort of thing, that all you're doing is using it to screw other people out of their productive labor because you happen to have a nominal right that some state has given you. And so I think the extent to which property law maintains sort of a normative grasp on the, you know, the, the feelings of the people, if you will, in a broad sense, it has to be grounded in 
rights to use. I mean, I, 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 I come at property theory from that perspective, but then also just looking at it structurally and how does it work, it seems to me that, you know, one does not, you know, uh, gather acorns in a state of nature simply for the perverse pleasure of excluding other people from them. And if one did, there wouldn't be any reason why we should be particularly interested in protecting that with the force of the state. I, I want to get back to that because um, I, I think that's that's that intuition that you just had uh, is where I think the rubber meets the road. But um, but before we sure. do that, let me let me just try out just a really super quick explanation of Hofeld because I think Hofeld had two uh, two kind of giant advances in his early pieces, the two early Yale pieces, and and I think most everything else you can derive from these. One is that you can describe law as a series, uh, as a, as just a union of a whole bunch of potential relationships between people where the state with respect to each relationship will tell you whether or not one can compel something, someone to do something they don't want to do. So, uh, so, so all law is relational rather than, um, arising from axioms that speak more broadly. So does the plaintiff or defendant win in this particular suit? We can describe law that way. Secondly, the kinds of relations of which law takes account are of two kinds and not just one. First are things we might call duties and uh, that, that law will find against you if you fail to perform a duty to another person that you had to another person. Duties are only arise between two individuals, although you might have a duty to a whole bunch of individuals, but, but that just means you have a whole bunch of duties to individuals. Secondly are powers and powers are just the ability to create new duties or to get rid of old duties. I think from those two things, powers and duties, you can de- you can derive all of the other you know correlatives. So the the absence of a, a the absence of, of a duty is a privilege. If you if you're not under a duty to do something or refrain from doing something, you have a you have a privilege to do that thing or or not do that thing. Um, and, and similarly, you know, if you don't have a right to do something, it, et cetera. So um, and then the same with uh, the same with powers. So that's a very brief explanation. I don't know if you accept that. Yeah, I think that's basically the gist of it. I mean, I think. Another way to describe it briefly is simply that Hofo looked around and saw that a lot of people, as we still do today, are throwing around the word right. I have a right to this and a right to that, and and it's not desperately clear what that means as a practical matter. I mean, it's interesting that you mentioned his two articles. So the first article, the 1913 one, is the one that sort of sets out this basic vocabulary talking about jural relations, just giving us this, you know, taxonomy, if you will, of ways to speak more precisely about what we mean when we say somebody has a right to something. And then there's the 1917 article, which is the one that I think is more problematic from a property theory perspective. And you alluded to it. You mentioned that he basically says this notion of in rem rights should be thought of simply as an aggregate of lots of rights. In fact, I just wrote my contribution to that um, collection that I mentioned that we're doing, you know, the Yale uh, Hofeld Centennial takes on that specific piece of Hofeld and tries to reach sort of a mediated settlement with him as to the right way to think and talk about property and when you're doing the interim side of it, because I think that's where he gets a lot of pushback, I think, in his way of trying to say, it's just stupid to think about property as a right to a thing. And I'm sort of pushing back on that and saying, well, it's really not. It's actually quite functional. But anyway, that's a little bit a tangent from what we mainly want to talk no, about I, right I, now. Yeah, I, I don't know. If, I don't know if it is. I mean, that's because that's the first place where the Hofeldian framework kind of hits up against um, at least a number of other kind of libertarian property writers that I've that I've read, right, and against the kind of Henry Smith, Tom Merrill, in rem, in personam distinction. So, so one way of looking at property is it's it is like it, it's a it's a separate area of law that arises from interests and rights and things, and then we have to right. you know we've got various kinds of 
justifications for recognizing connections between people and things. But but the upshot is that, say, unlike contract, uh, your right in a thing, if it's of the right type for us to say that it's property, is a right which is good against the whole world. It doesn't, in other words, the identity of the people who might interfere with that right is irrelevant as to whether you would win a lawsuit against that person. Uh, as against, say, in personam rights in contract where, you know, maybe I contract with you to, to sell a car or something like that. And now you have a duty to, to transfer your car to me if I pay money. And if you violate that duty, I can sue you. Um, but of course, that is only because you're you and we had this contract. The, the right is personal between uh, you mm-hmm. and me rather than rather than good against the whole world. And so I know that a number of property theorists have pushed on this like NREM notion as as if not definitive of property, one of the key kind of one, one of the key elements that distinguishes property as a field. And I take it. And, and so Hofeld, Hofeld's early work is, is, is a kind of a, could be seen as a challenge to it because it's a, it's a description of the world, which recognizes that things that we see as in REM might be seen as nothing more than the union of a whole bunch of potential lawsuits against a lot of different people. And so, yeah, I, Maybe that's important to where we want to go with this conversation. Maybe not, but it does seem to be one of the key mm-hmm. jumping off points for you is to is simultaneously to use Hofeld and this very careful use of language about rights and privileges, but at the same time reject the, the kind of the totalization of the Hofeldian relational right. framework. Well, that's definitely an interesting topic, and if you want, I'll follow up by sending you this uh, my my most recent piece, which which delves into that directly. I'd love to get your reaction to it. But I mean, in effect, I think one way to to quickly finesse the point is to say, look, Hofeld is using an analytical language, right? He's describing if you break down jural relationships into their what he considers their sort of smallest irreducible components from a practical sense, what does that world look like? And I think the language of in rem um, functions at a slightly different level in that it's a nor- it's more of a normative level. The world of in rem rights describes how we cognitively experience certain rights and duties. And as you were pointing out, the key point of an in rem right or duty is that certain knowledge about other people, other parties to that relationship is normatively inert. It's unnecessary. And therefore, you abstract away from it because you don't need it to figure out either the incidence of a duty or the content of the duty. And therefore, when you're describing that world, it makes a lot of sense cognitively and just conceptually to say, I have a right to a thing that's good against an undefined class of people. And there's nothing obfuscatory about that. And there's no reason why you can't reconcile it with Hofeld's you know, insistence that, okay, fine, but when you cash that out at the end of the day, what you're really talking about is a whole aggregate of individual right-duty relationships between the owner and everybody else. I don't think those things need to be in conflict. I think, unfortunately, they, they're placed in conflicts to some extent because Hofeld wasn't as intellectually charitable as one might have liked in mm-hmm. that he once he decided that he had this precise vocabulary, he then goes and criticizes everybody else who's not using it and assumes they must be making illegitimate moves when they may not be. They may just, you know, the mere fact that you've invented a new vocabulary and other people aren't using it correctly doesn't mean everybody's reasoning is wrong, you know. And sometimes, right, right. sometimes Hofeld has a bit of that to him. And so part of what I do in this other paper is I'm sort of struggling with, look, you have to sort of decide how charitably to read Hofeld and you have to read him more charitably than he reads other people mm. in order to say that, you know, you can reconcile these things. Because at some points he does seem to be, you know, it, it would be one thing to say, look, when you're talking about in-rem rights, 
what you really mean at the end of the day, if you cash it out, is going to look like this. And here I can give you a more precise tool for describing that, what that looks like, that's going to be useful and is going to save you from certain errors in certain contexts. That's a perfectly legitimate, useful thing to do. Unfortunately, often it seems like what Hofeld is doing is not simply doing that, but just saying, oh, that's wrong. That's stupid. Stop saying that. (laughs) And I think it's important to see that, you know, because it sounds like a uh, because I think quite plainly the the NREM language, the the language of NREM minus a few exceptions or Hofeldian union of a bunch of individual rights, but not some are are basically equivalent ways of describing what in fact will unfold in in the legal world. And and so the question is like, so why does this matter? And I think you can't overstate the extent to which politics and political theory is kind of roiling just beneath the formal surface here, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's there's a lot at stake in how we characterize property because kind of the rhetoric of property protection, which includes the, the, the formal language you use to describe what property is and whether you think a property is a separate field or, or something else, right. like is going to inform the the perceived strength of claims that you that that you would identify in individual owners like so do i have a right to resist governmental efforts to protect wetlands on my property like that's a sure. very politically charged question and as it turns out the more people kind of argue about that in whether it's in court or or in or in law review articles the more the kind of the the rhetoric of property protection appears to be I don't know, maybe stylized, but but set. The, the more it appears to matter, uh, the the more people adopt certain stylistic preferences, and 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 I don't know, may, maybe the NREM versus Hofeld distinction at the end of the day is really a, a, a stylistic one. I mean, there there's two different models for describing right, exactly right. the same thing. I think. No, I hear what you're saying, and I I think frankly that the this aspect of the debate, sort of the the formal conceptual structure of how we talk about things and the extent to which that has a political valence, I think can easily be overblown. I don't think it needs to. In fact, that to some extent, that's what I say in this other paper to which I'm referring. I'm saying, look, you can use Hofeldian analysis no matter what your ultimate views are about property. It doesn't nest, but there's a reason, there is nevertheless, having said that, there is a reason why you know, I don't think I don't think Hofeld had any particular political agenda, but it's clear that the progressives and the realists sort of picked up his intellectual spade work as an easy way to sort of, you know, uh, deconstruct, if you will, and uh, the the concept of property and therefore the institution of property. And so, if you make the move, which I don't think you have to make, and I don't think it's a logical move, but if you make the move from saying. I can describe the content of property using this list of jural relations. And then you take the next move and say, oh, it's just a list of jural relations, so it's sort of arbitrary what's in there, and I can alter it at will, and I can still call it property, and it's still property. We can argue about that and what you're doing there, but that that's the move that, in effect, the implied move that some people were trying to use Hofeld to make, and did make, very, you know, and the in-rem thing plays into that to some extent. So you can certainly use any sort of analytical tool can be used in an in an effect, you know, to to attempt to sort of delegitimize or destabilize an area of doctrine um, in order for whatever it is your purposes are. Um, I don't know that it has to be used that way, and I don't know that using it that way necessarily, in a strict logical sense, adds anything to your argument. But certainly rhetorically, it does, right? Yeah, and I so, mean, when, when you use the you know when you use the Hofeldian kind of proclaim a basis for describing property, it's, it makes it kind of clear that that each claim needs to be justified, right? So each claim to a right to use property 
mm-hmm. needs to, things don't come along for free just because you call it property. That's kind of the realist perspective on on what Hofeld sure. is doing. But but I wonder if maybe we should get into though what you mean by a vested use privilege because that's that's sure. your extension of Hofeld and that gets us ultimately to the copyright stuff. But I've, I'm also, inter- in addition to copyright, I'm also interested in these nose punching cases, which is an example I always use in class. Yeah. Um, uh, so, so why don't you tell us, what is a vested use privilege? Okay, so let's start with a use privilege, first of all, right? So if we're using, so again, what we're talking about here, big picture is, um, what does it mean to say you own something? What, as a practical matter, follows from that, right? And the big thing that people always focus on, as Joe pointed out, is the right to exclude. But there's something else. And I start off this paper just sort of with a basic observation slash intuition that most people seem to feel on a gut level that property is not just about keep your hands off my stuff, that property in some sense, perhaps more fundamentally is about if it's mine, I can do what I want with it. There's a very practical thing that's been in the news uh, 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 lately yeah. um, that, that people may have seen. Uh, and so a variety of states are considering statutes, they call them right to repair statutes. And this Mm -hmm. is the notion that if you own an object, you should be able to fix it. And that might include taking it apart. It might include doing some other things with it. But if someone who sells it to you is trying to assert that you don't have the right to fix your stuff, Mm -hmm. um, they're doing something illicit and that the law should reflect that. Um, If there were copyright overtones to this, obviously, I think it would need to be a federal statute, not a state statute. But right. uh, Because there'd be some supremacy clause questions there. But in any event. um, So this is something people are talking about in in real terms uh, around the country that that bear on this idea, as you say, you know, do I get to do what I want with my stuff? Isn't that what being my stuff means? Exactly. And I think that to a large extent, really, the right to exclude is there as a prophylactic to to protect your right to do with your stuff, right? The purpose of the right to exclude, the justification for it is to prevent people from interfering with your practical ability to do what you want with your stuff, right? And that's a, that's a whole other topic. But anyway, so back to, so if we try to ask the question, okay, it's one thing to say I have this sort of gut moral intuition that a lot of people seem to share, at least to some extent, that if I'm saying I own something, part of that means I get to do what I want with it. All right, what is, how far does that go, first of all? And what does it mean if we try to analyze it as a sort of a legal proposition? And that's where I sort of bring in the Hofeld is just sort of providing a useful set of tools for thinking about this. So you say, what is that? What is, you know, the the a right to do what I want with something could be construed in two ways, right? Again, one is if I'm using Hofeld, then whenever as soon as I use the word right, as you've said, it has to there has to be a correlative duty on the part of somebody else. And so if by saying I have a right to use my stuff as I want, if I'm saying it's a Hofeldian right, what I must be saying is that you have a duty to let me use my stuff as I want, which would that would more or less translate into the right to exclude. In other words, you have no right or you have you know, you would you have a duty not to physically interfere with me when I'm trying to use my stuff the way I want to. That would be one way of construing it. But that, again, is just the um, that's just the the right to exclude side of it. It seems to me that the right to make use of your stuff has another component to it, which is what Hofeld would call a privilege, i.e. the absence of a duty not to use it. In other words, when we say that I have a right to use my stuff as I see fit, what we mean is that I am the person who is vested with discretionary authority to decide how this thing will and will not be used. I may then be able to protect my choices in that regard by employing a right to exclude against other people. But the more fundamental thing is I get to decide what's going to be done with this. And nobody else is entitled 
to countermand me on that, to even if they're not going to interfere with it physically themselves, they don't have a right to tell me what to do, to tell me use this in this way and not in that way. That's the intuition. And so the question is, what does that look like analytically? Well, that's what Hofeld would call a privilege. And so I dub it a use privilege. So I define a use privilege as an absence of duty to any other person to use or not use the property in some determinate way. Now, as soon as you say that, though, you realize, wait a second, we have a problem. Because clearly, it's nobody thinks it's the case that just because I own my fist, I can hit you in the nose with it. Or just because I have a car, I can run you over with it. It's clear that that's going to be a non-starter. If we try to posit some sort of legal positive rule that says if you own something, you therefore have no duty to anybody else to refrain from using it in certain ways, that can't be right. So, And as I point out in the paper, I think that messiness is part of the reason why people tend to gravitate toward right to exclude as sort of the nice, crisp way of defining the essence of property, because it's a lot less ambiguous. As soon as you start talking about a use privilege, even though we all have the intuition that that's important, it becomes very difficult to define what does that mean. This is why I say, well, look, if you look, here's where Hofeld, I think, is kind of useful, because Hofeld tells you, well, wait a second, if you're talking about some sort of absolute use privilege, um, already you're off on the wrong foot because, again, as you pointed out, Christian, jural relations are bilateral relationships, and every, you know, every uh, jural relation has a correlative that somebody else must have the other end of. And so, if you're asserting a privilege to use your property, you have to specify well, what does the other end of that look like? And the other end of that doesn't look like because it's my property. Um, you have to sit there and let me run you over with my car, or you have to sit there and let me punch you in the nose. Um, I have duties not to do those things to you. What the other end of my use privilege looks like is you don't get to express a purely discretionary preference as to how the property is used, um, one that's not grounded in some other source of right that you can impose on me as a duty. In other words, you have to be able to point to some property interest that you have in something else, something other than the thing that I own, that provides you with a just claim as to why I shouldn't use my property. In other so, words, you're going to have, yeah. go ahead, I'll no, stop there. No, no, no. I was just going to interject because this brings us to, I think a well-known, well, two things. One, the traditional, uh, at least as I, as, as I uh, um, uh, array my course, and, and I think a traditional breakdown is between trespass and nuisance as two causes of actions, which realize on the one hand rights to exclude and on the other hand, on the other hand, rights to use. Yeah. And, and it's, and it's no accident that trespass is a, a, a much crisper cause of action where you're not required to show damage. Although, you know, I'm sure your property course, like everybody else's is shows all the ways that that cause of action is not nearly as crisp as, as you might think, since lots right. of exceptions. Right. But on the nuisance side, it's not even conceptually possible to be crisp. I mean, it, the nuisance side involves a, a, a standard, you know, one of the ultimate balancing standards, substantial and unreasonable interference and requires some showing of, of damage. And, right. and there are kind of conceptual reasons for that that I want to get into. But one of the things that you see in, in nuisance law is the introduction by some courts of statements which sound very much like what you start with, right? Which is that a property owner has an absolute right to do whatever he or she wants to do with her property up until it in, interferes with the rights of, of other uh, people or property owners, right. which is a, just a kind of a statement of Mill's liberty principle, I think, yeah. you know, the, a basic kind of libertarian, which on its own, and, and as you point out, now here's what I want to see where you take this, is kind of incoherent on its own, right? Because the, the whole problem is to identify the boundaries of these um, uh, the boundaries of these rights and privileges and what a harm is. When you say it's mm -hmm. incoherent, what's the it? The Mill's liberty principle on its own. 
right? The, the principle that you can do whatever you want with your property up until well, it interferes with someone else, right? It, it's the whole ball game is in that incoherent. I would say it's insufficiently specified. It's not sufficient to actually solve most practical problems. That doesn't mean it's incoherent, right? What I mean by that is that um, that principle, to the extent that that principle implies a result in any particular case, it's entirely dependent on how you define interference, harm, and preference. Absolutely. And, and, so, and so the principle itself does no work. All, all, of the, all of the work is in the definition of those terms. So it's completely dependent on some auxiliary moral theory. I mean, this was Coase's insight sure, sure. Uh, way, way back when. And so what I'm curious about here is how does because, – because, of course, you say and you started with, like, it's not enough to say you can do whatever you want with your property because you have all these examples of nose punching and car running down and all these other right. areas. Where, and and um, how does what you do with, with Hofeld – in your eyes, I mean, how does this how does this get us over the Cosian hump, right? The hump of uh, of the observation that everything that people do with their bodies, with their property, with things in the world um, has the potential. It certainly does have effects. The tendrils of causation emanate from everything that we do right. and, and affect others. And for and some of those effects will be unwelcome. It's hard to predict which will be unwelcome and which we welcome. And so, one of the things the law does is to try to kind of put some borders around these tendrils of causation in, in sometimes in crisp ways, like with trespass and sometimes in, in balancing type ways as, as with nuisance. Um, do you think that, I mean, this formal definition of, of use privilege, does, does it get us over that hump in a way? Well, yeah. no, I mean, obviously any, you know, a formal framework like the one that I'm providing here cannot purport to resolve all the underlying substantive issues. What it's doing is providing sort of an analytical framework within which you can have those discussions. I mean, I guess all, and remember, I'm being a little bit more, you know, my my, cl- my ultimate claim in this paper is the fairly modest one that, you know, this this conflict between IP and property is really no different from the normal conflicts we already have between different people's property rights. Okay, right, it doesn't right. add anything to it. It's no more or less reconcilable than it is. So it's not something new. It's not like all of a sudden, oh, we have these IP rights, which are suddenly abrogating my my traditional property rights. I, we were already in that world. So in a certain sense, that's the very modest, perhaps obvious point that I'm making. But yes, I am sort of providing a way that I think is useful of thinking about it, which to some extent does, I would say, maybe help frame the inquiry. I certainly don't think it answers the, any of the hard substantive questions, because you're right. Like, take the regulatory taking setting, right? Um, if you... This is where the government puts in a regulation which is, you say, so extensive that it amounts to an exercise of eminent domain and they should have to compensate you. This is so government doesn't just have to take right. property and, and make a post office in order to owe you money for the interferences. And that's the regulatory well, and the takings reason doctrine. That the, the reason that regulatory takings is obviously a salient example here, even though I don't spend much time on it in this paper – is that it really does raise front and center the question of whether there is such a thing as a vested use privilege as a property owner, or to, or rather, I should say, to what extent use privileges are actually vested. And by vested here, I mean legally recognized as being protected such that they can't be taken away from you, either without consent or at least without some compensation, as is done in eminent domain. So if the government like take the Lake Tahoe case, which I used to use as an I, I had a, an earlier draft of this had a fairly lengthy discussion of that case, right? The famous so you know in the, in the vicinity of Lake Tahoe they put in a you know a build a moratorium on building on lots you know in the vicinity of the lake, right? Yeah. yeah. And the reason for this is that the lake is getting, you know, discolored because of the results of construction, and so they decide, you know, we're going to put a moratorium. So from the perspective of 
the property owner of somebody who now suddenly they bought their property at time T1 thinking they could build at time T2, this moratorium goes into effect. From their perspective, they would say, okay, I bought this land on the premise that I could do what I want with it. Now, of course, I knew already coming into it that do what I want with it is going to be governed by certain zoning ordinances that exist and you know nuisance law and all kinds of things like that. Nevertheless, this is something totally new out of the blue, where all of a sudden, one of the things, one of the key things that I thought I was relying on being able to do with my land, all of a sudden I'm being told I can't. And so is that in some sense a violation of my property rights? And you know, when you raise the question that way, we're really what you're asking is, is this a vested use privilege? That in effect is what's being asked in the regulatory takings cases. Now, one argument using my framework to say, no, it's really not a taking of any vested use privilege would be to use my, you know, my, my four square chart that Joe likes so much and to say, well, what's going on here? Is this really this, when the state made this moratorium, was the state just sort of expressing its own political use preference? No, we would prefer that your land sit there and not have a house on it. Well, that's what we think the best use of your land is to be undeveloped. And therefore we're imposing that preference on you. If you categorize it that way, then it sounds like, yes, that's simply a taking. That's simply a, a direct choice to abrogate your, you know, what I call the sovereign use privilege. Now, of course, that's not what the state said. What the state would say is, well, no, what we're doing is we are protecting a valid pre-existing recognized interest that in, you know, the, the lake. And in fact, in a certain sense, what you're doing to the lake or at least the type of harm that we think is caused to the lake is the type of harm that in theory, in principle at least, could be recognized under traditional nuisance law, right? Emitting, you know, giving out emissions that change the, you know, alter the color of the lake. That's the sort of thing that in principle could count as a nuisance. Of course, we wouldn't really be able to sue you individually for nuisance because we'd never be able to show that you individually were causing the lake to change color. This is one of those cases where absent some sort of broader regulation the harm that we see is going to escape tort law as a remedy. So therefore, we have to do it. Nevertheless, the argument would be we're not really asserting a discretionary control over preferences of use of your property. What we're doing is attempting to prevent a recognized category of harm to the public's use and enjoyment of this lake. And therefore, what we're doing should not be regarded as violating your sovereign use privilege. Now, of course, that just brings in the problem of characterization, right? Which, of course, I cannot possibly resolve just using a formal test. We're going to have to have the actual substantive argument. Okay. Mm -hmm. How far can, but I think there are some things you can, certainly when you're doing it in a takings context, you have the question. And this is where, you know, you know, Scalia's approach in the Nolan case comes in, where he was trying to, he was trying to find some sort of an objective line here to avoid putting us in the position where a state can just basically come up with anything they want, some sort of purported interest on the side of the public that they're protecting, and therefore take away all your use rights, right? I mean, that that would be one extreme. And then the question is, how do you draw some sort of workable line? And so Scalia's line was, well, if this would count as a nuisance at common law, then the state can regulate it. If not, then it's a regulatory. T- In other words, he was trying yeah, to say, yeah. was no. there a pre-existing, clearly established common law right for you to make this type of use, or wasn't there? You know? Right. I think that was Lucas, and and, and another way of yeah, another way of seeing that case right is that it's. I think the line he was pushing is: is the government trying to use your property as a nature preserve, or as a yeah. hurric- or a hurricane buffer, or something like that? And that's, that's another way, and to that's put like it. qualitatively distinct from. Are they trying to remove a harmful use, um, which is which is interesting because of course he rejects the harm benefit distinction in that case, 
mm-hmm. um, which was relied on, by the way, in Kilo. I mean, there's, there's a huge like this whole idea of of when you of when judges and 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 scholars and lawyers latch on to a uh, an assumed definition of harm, and when they attack it as as uh, kind of economically um, uh, underspecified or variable. There's there's a really interesting psychology there, I think, of, of or sociology of of the law. Right, right. But, no, absolutely. But, but he he's been on both sides of that, which I find interesting because there is a lot of rhetorical force and 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 analytical force to this idea that if what the government is doing is basically using your property, I think Jed Rubenfeld has written about this, right? Uh, then yeah. then that is a it's it, it's 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 not just exercising its sovereign prerogative over all properties, but it is actually taking soil ownership of your property in a in a real mm-hmm. sense. But if we can take it before we get back to copyright, um, yeah, to, to uh, an example w- which doesn't involve the government. So, and, and I often use in class just to talk about nuisance and try to pro- uh, kind of provoke the students into seeing Kosa's point. But suppose we got someone who two two neighbors who live next door to each other. One of them um, engages, likes to have parties, not anything too crazy, but they're, you know, they can be loud. And then, and the neighbor next door likes to sleep. Mm-hmm. And um, so we've got, uh, you know, someone who prefers parties, someone who prefers sleeping. Both of those seem like ordinary uses of, of property. I mean, you, you mm-hmm. could imagine in the abstract saying that each has a use privilege and a vested use privilege to use their mm-hmm. property on the one hand to entertain and the other to, to sleep, uh, to, to, to get up the next morning and go to work. Uh, and yet, those two use privileges can be in conflict. Does the how do you how do you think about a case? So it's, it's a little it, it's a, it's a little less um, uh, literally in your face than the nose punching example, but the same basic right. problem. Uh, how, how do you think about that case? So we start off with the premise that each each of the two parties has the same sort of interest in use and enjoyment of their own property. Now, since in this case the two desired uses are to some extent in conflict, I mean. Obviously, you have a couple of choices. You can take the Kosian view and you can simply say, well, I'll just assign the right to one of the two of them and then whichever one values it more will buy it. And that's the end of that. Um, I don't think that's the way the common law has traditionally done it. I think you sort of have to look at you have to decide. Well, let me say this. I mean, I think you're not going to be able to escape the, the idea that some claims of use are going to be regarded as sort of inherently unreasonable. Well, no, I, I, what I take as the Coasean view is not is not just the Coase theorem, which you know Coase right. himself rejected as a theorem, and no, I know I recognize their transaction costs and everything. But but I think Coase would say the problem here is we have two incompatible uses next to one another. There's a, there's a there's a social loss because of their uh, their joint interaction, right? And so the the right rule of law is the one which promotes the minimization of that joint loss or the maximization of joint benefits, if you put it differently. Having to take into account that both are responsible for the fact that there is a problem. Right, right. So you can't, you you can't solve the problem by pretending they aren't both participants in the creation of the problem. And you can't, and you can't just rely naively on the idea that one is harming the other, because if you privilege the, the partier, (laughs) right, right, if you privilege the partier, then then the sleeper is the one who's, but if you say the partier, they have to stop, then the sleeper is causing some harm to the, Use, to the use preferences of the, no, of the partier. And so you have to recognize that no matter how you resolve this case, um, you're going to override one person's preference in favor of the other. You're going to assign an entitlement. And then that's where you can either take the view that, you know, if I'm worried about simply, you know, that I can let the bargaining take place and that will lead to the right result. I realize that that's not the, exactly the Coase theorem. But what I was going to say is I don't think, I think what we generally do is we try to say as a first cut, 
we have to decide which one of these claims is really reasonable because one party is asking the state to use force to stop the other party from doing something with his property, mm-hmm. right? And I think even though, even if you buy, I mean, yes, it's true in one sense, the, you know, the symmetry of the problem, but I think most of us as a gut matter and as a practical matter don't really view it as fully, that fully symmetrical. Usually we view it, yes, one, the, the preferences are in conflict, but that doesn't mean that the actions and the physical chain of causality that gives rise to the conflict is purely symmetrical, right? I think the law takes that into account. The law does take directionality into account, and I think most human beings take it into account. Um, So it may well be that we say that the person who wants to sleep all the time, certainly we're not going to give them a right to simply enjoin any noise crossing the boundary line as a nuisance, because I just don't want to hear any noise, right? It's sort of like the eggshell plaintiff rule, if you will, to some extent, you know, where you might say, we're not going to say, we're not going to privilege your idiosync- highly idiosyncratic stringent preferences in such a way that your use and enjoyment, in effect, prevents other people from making what we would normally consider reasonable use of their property. We're going to have to put give some content to that term, reasonable use of property, that's going to ultimately be based on some sort of basic social norms and understanding of what the neighborhood is used for, what most people here are doing in an established sense. I mean, I think that's part of the calculus and probably has to be. Yeah, and I think that's right. I mean, Ellickson, I think it's Ellickson who has the theory of, of subnormal property uses, right? So if, if you're trying to be even handed about it, but you and but you recognize the problem of of you know, that there isn't a fixed baseline, then what you're looking at is to find the nuisance in, in the use, which is subnormal, right? Which is basically right. subnormal returns, right? To the rest of the community, subnormal spillovers. And, uh, but I, but I guess what it does do once, but, but another way to go is just to say the right answer is the one which gets the question right cognitively, meaning that most people will accept as, as the right answer to good behavior in that situation. But that seems to be quite far afield from kind of a Lockean dessert theory that, that what we're looking for is like a, that, that, that property ownership carries with it some, some right arising from how you acquire it or, or something else, you know, well, so I, I would push afield. back against that. Yeah. Actually, in fact, my colleague, Eric Clays is right, is writing a lot about this, that people, I think the sort of, he's trying to correct sort of the straw man that people make out of Lockean theory. I think Lockean theory, it, actually is quite compatible with the type of reasoning that we're discussing because yes he's describing why you need an institution of private property and how you can normatively justify the way in which you people go about staking claims to exclusive use of certain resources but nevertheless at the end of the day these are practical conflicts are going to arise between people in the within this normative framework and so ultimately you're going to have to have some way of reconciling them you're going to have to place when you make a claim of having acquired property what you're doing is you're saying to the world look i have a moral interest in making productive use of this resource and i have laid claim to this resource based on these various criteria that you can get from Locke or from common law which say okay because this resource was here and i'm the one who acquired it or created it i have some justifiable claim that everybody should respect, that they not deliberately interfere with my use and enjoyment of it. Obviously, that claim has to have some sort of reasonable limits on it. Otherwise, nobody else would be willing to recognize it as a valid reciprocal claim that people people can make on each other, right? There has to be, you know, if you buy the whole idea that people are capable through reason of creating a social order, there's got to, there has to be some right. point at which we say, okay, your your claim to, you know, to uh, use, use and enjoyment, yes, that, that entitles you to be free from some types of interference, 
but not anything that I might conceivably do that might in some sense impede your pleasure, right? We're going to have to draw a line somewhere. Now, there's no theory, I think, that can tell you a priori, a very easy, quick, formulaic, bright line drawing of all of those lines. That's going to be very context dependent. It's going to be dependent on things about the culture of the community and the people you're dealing with. And it's going to depend on the neighborhood. And I think that's kind of unavoidable. And I don't think the fact that we need to engage in that sort of practical reasoning is in any sense inconsistent with Locke. The notion, the notion that Locke just can be boiled down to, I made it, therefore it's mine, therefore I have absolute right. rights. I mean, that's a straw man. Nobody believed that. Locke wasn't arguing for that. There is even uh, some utilitarianism in Locke's paper, right? That, uh, well, that, consequentialism. Whether yeah. you call it utilitarianism or not is another can of worms. Well, but I guess that's right. Yeah, there, there's no other way to do it. And yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, so how, 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 does this, how does this cash out for the copyright problems that we started the conversation with? I mean, so, you know, in other words, are we, are we, is what you can do with a, with an ebook that you have, Yeah. should, should the use privileges and the extent of those privileges that we recognize as, as vesting, are, are those based on kind of a similar community norm clustering of concepts or is there something else going on? Well, so I take it the first cut is, you know, and I sort of assume in my paper here, I don't try to go into arguing to what extent is copyright justified. I mean, I talk about, I think, what the basic, I give sort of a brief account as, you know, as as I need to, of what I think copyright is trying to do and what the interest it's trying to protect is, which I, I would describe as it's protecting an interest that cr- authors have in being permitted to use and enjoy their own works. In this context, of course, what we mean by use and enjoy is not simply be able to listen to their own song or read their right. own book, because they could do that anyway. Right. What we mean is the ability, the practical ability to use their productive intellectual labor as a basis for exchange of values with others, which means as a practical matter, the ability to control access to the creative contents of what they've created, to the expression, the expressive value of what they've created, so that they can use it as, again, a basis for exchange, or they can use the ability to selectively grant access to that expression as the basis for some productive life pursuit, whatever it is that they're trying to further, whether it's to make money or something else, right? If that's the basic idea, and I'm I'm assuming now without arguing for it, that that sits on a very similar justifiable basis, just like any claim of property rights. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the very, it's a very obviously it presents different practical problems because of the nature of the property being claimed, but in terms of the basic if you will, normative intuition as to why that might be a desirable thing to have. I think it's very similar. Um, all right, then we still have the same question that we had with regard to property, right? with regard to, say, land or whatever it is, is what's the proper way to define the uh, the scope, the scope of the, um, the burden that we're going to put on other people to... Um, no, so you you when, position- when, when preferences conflict, right? So when when the user like the fair use is is all about this, right? So when when the when the owner of a book or or someone who has access to mm-hmm. your intellectual property has preferences for its use, which conflict with your preferences as the author, like what happens in that case? And that, that right. and, and as you your framework is one which says that's a the right way to look at that is to figure out the proper. Uh, extent of vested use privileges of each party, right? It's funny that you say this because I'm actually writing another paper, which I think Joe knows about, but I haven't given it to him yet, about fair use, where I'm sort of trying to uh, to spell this out. Because I think fair use actually involves two different, que- I think there are actually two different paradigms of fair use <laughs> that we we tend to meld together, and it would actually be useful in some instances to conceptually separate them. And it's, it ties into the conversation we're having, because I think uh-huh. one of those models 
is really a trespass model and the other one is a nuisance model. In other words, just very pre- briefly. Oh, interesting. Yeah. The version of fair use where we're talking about is this transformative, which I take it to be the one that comes, you know, from Folsom v. Marsh via Campbell into our our doctrine. When we're asking is the work transformative, I argue that's really a border dispute. That's really a trespass case where we're arguing over where's the borderline, how far does my property extend, mm. and have you changed what you're doing enough so that you're really on your side of the property line and not mine. So I would say the Folsom v. Marsh paradigm of fair use is the paradigm where the reason that we have to have this second hard look is because it's like a survey case. It's like a trespass case where the actual, you know, the actual location of the borderline is somewhat fuzzy and is in dispute. And we have to, the other version of fair use, the other paradigm is what I call the Sony version of fair use, which is where we're not arguing about the border, but it's more of a nuisance case. It's more where we're saying, okay, I, it's clear that you are in some sense invading my property. The question is whether you're doing it in such a way and for such a purpose and with little enough harm to me that you should be allowed to do it, and I no, shouldn't have really right interesting. To, to exclude. And you and you say uh, Sony to to capture the um uh the, the the early dispute about whether it was okay to time shift using a, right exactly a, because right. Sony's a case where clearly I mean you're you're making there, there's no transformation there's right. nothing transformative about it right there's nothing transformative about it though of course part of the problem is that people are taking that term transformative and trying to stretch it be uh, to cover everything so yeah. there's people today who more or less would make the argument that Sony's transformative because they'd say well you know, taping it in order to watch it later. It's trans it's a transformative purpose. I mean, right. you know, it gets but I think, you know, I think I think it would be useful to you keep transformation in one area and not try to use it to make all of fair use about transformation. I think the so that's that's the next paper that I'm writing, which is in effect attempting to say, look, there's two different versions yeah, of fair interesting. use. Yeah. And in and within each one of them we need to do a better job of doing sort of a holistic analysis that the way the right way to use those fair use factors is to use them as lenses that are all trying to corroborate and correct each other in triangulating on a common phenomenon, not as we too often do now, as like a series of stones that you plop on one side or another of mm-hmm. a scale and decide which one weighs more. You know. Anyway, that's that's the next paper. So <laughs> let's let's go back to the to the book versus and think about book versus ebook. Yeah. And and what I take to be an important elaboration that. Uh, if we say under copyright law that that one of your uh, rights is, as a copyright owner is the right to exclude other people from reproducing the work in a copy, yeah, uh, that the way we're trying to come at this problem of what of what I should be how I should be able to uh, m- realize the marketable potential of my intangible work, uh, if that's a matter of central concern, and it seems to be uh, that I can market copies but i can also make sure that people don't take material they own out of which they could fabricate yet another copy and take the access they get by having purchased a book from me in order to create a new copy of it in competition with me Mm -hmm. so i I am sort of trying to regulate what they do with stuff they own Mm -hmm. um but it's not I'm regulating what they do with stuff they own in a way that isn't particularly attentive to the properties of the stuff they own. Um, Any way that you tried to make a new copy of my book would be problematic. Exactly. And Chris, isn't your argument in that regard that 
that that saying that you can't use your paper and ink to make a copy of my book, that that that's not a taking over of the those materials. It's not it's not a replacing of the use of those materials with your preferences. Rather, exactly. it's, a, it's an exclusion of a particular use. It's so it sounds more like the right duty pair than it does a privilege no right pair. And it, to speak of Jed Rubenfeld again, it sounds more like his right to privacy piece. Um, right. So in other words, yeah. so what I'm saying right. is what I'm yeah. positing here is that. To the extent that they that an owner of, of property, of, let's say of tangible property, wants to assert what I'm calling their sovereign use privilege and to say, well, you can't tell me what to do because otherwise you're violating my rights as owner to do what I want with my property. In order for them to have already, just as a prima facie case, I was in order for that, that claim to have some force, they at least be, need to be able to point to some sense in which the other party is making a discretionary use preference. And I, and that's where this sort of formal test that I came in that I that I described is trying to get at what that looks like. And I sort of say it well. It has two components. One is that the person who's making the claim has to, you know, they have to justify their claim somehow, right? And if part of their justification for that claim is pointing to the specific property at issue and its identifying characteristics and saying, "I have a right to tell you what to do with this because of the type of property it is." That sort of weighs in favor of the notion that it might be a discretionary use privilege. The second part is, in order for them to justify their claim as to why I shouldn't do this, do they have to make reference to some other recognized property interest that they have and harm that's being made to it or that's potentially made to it, as opposed to simply saying, I don't want you to do that with what you have, right? I mean, now, of course, again, I'm not claiming that this formal net, you know, this formal statement of the problem is going to actually resolve all the tricky underlying substantive issues. Of course, of it course, can't. Yeah. Because, but I think I still, um, there are places, though, where it does, it does make it fairly clear that what's being done sounds like it falls in one or the other of the boxes, right? So, so for so example, let, yeah. let, let, let me ask a question though, because it sounds like if, and, and again, we're focusing on an instance where I have a bottle of ink and a stack of paper. Um, I bought a book from you uh, that you own the copyright in and I, and I want to start copying out your book on my pieces of paper with my ink. Mm-hmm. And, and I say, I have the right to use my ink and paper as I like. And you say, I have the right to, um, uh, make use of my intangible creation as I like. Right. Um, and, and these have now, why aren't we back to sleepy neighbor and, and party neighbor where we well, have two claims of privilege that, yeah. that are clashing and we need to find some way to translate. If we either have to leave that where it is and say, yes. the law can't do anything with your clashing privileges, or we have to say, ah, there's a right duty relationship that we can bring into the picture, which helps us work through the clashing privileges. Well, okay. So w- when we approach this problem from the perspective of lawmakers who are trying to decide what the proper scope and content of copyright law is, then we are definitely in the position of, say, the judge who's just faced out of the blue with the nuisance problem and has to decide where to allocate the entitlement. When we're analyzing this, if we're doing this sort of analytically, given the structure of copyright law as it exists and assuming it to be valid and assuming copyright to be in service of some you know, justifiable property interest, okay, if you make that assumption, then the way you analyze this is you say, look, um, you can say the copyright's illegitimate if you want. Just as you might say, my right to bodily integrity is illegitimate if you feel like beating me up. <laughs> but the fact is, my claim that you not beat me up is not an assertion that I have ownership over your hand, over your fists and your feet. 
Um, it's simply saying you have a duty, a duty that is defined in terms of my property, my body, and certain consequences that you are not allowed to directly physically impose on me. And then I'm saying that copyright, at least with regard to the reproduction right, has exactly the same structure. I'm not claiming any ownership over your ink and your paper or any particular chattel in your possession. I'm saying you have a duty that's defined in terms of my work of authorship. And that duty is no matter how you're doing it or no matter with what chattels you're using to do so, don't bring another copy of my work into existence. And therefore, I would say that on that level, my assertion, yes, my assertion clearly does curtail things that you can do with your property, just like my assertion of, you know, owning Blackacre curtails your ability of where you walk and where you drive, right? I'm just simply, all I'm saying is that it stands in exactly that same analytical relationship to any valid property claim. So the use privilege is like every other use privilege (laughs) in a context of a social world where there are also rights and duties. So in other words, in or, uh, here's the problem, right? In order for my formal definition of what it means to have a sovereign use privilege, clearly in order to actually cash that out and then give it any content, you have to have recourse to prior arguments about what the proper scope of property claims are, right? Exactly, because what I'm right. saying is the only way I can substantiate my claim that you're violating my sovereign use privilege is if I say you are asserting um, some control over my what I can do with my property that's not grounded in a valid property right of yours, a valid property claim of yours. Well, how do I know if it's validated by a property claim of yours? Well, we have to look at the state of the positive law or we have to have an underlying normative argument about what your property rights should be, right? Obviously, I can't get around that. I can't solve that with some neat formal trick. Um, I'm not right. claiming to. No, not at all. Not at all. Just like in the regulatory takings context, we might say, Okay, it may be true that, you know, one one approach to the Lake Tahoe case is to say, yeah, sure, of course, it's perfectly legitimate for the state to want to protect that lake. Nevertheless, one approach would be to say, if they are now suddenly changing the rules of the game, and up till now, there has never been a common law right um, that, that we could point to that's being um, vindicated by this regulation, then it does, in effect, amount to a taking of what was a vested use privilege, which means the public should compensate the poor guys who got left with the bag. It may well be that we need the regulation to save the lake. It may also be that the people who showed up last after everybody else already got to build their house should now be compensated by all those people who built their houses and are now telling you you can't build yours because now the cumulative effect is to hurt the lake, right? I mean, and you can have you can make the same argument, by the way, in copyright, as I point out, like when they did the um, when they do a retroactive term extension. Or when they resuscitate works that had fallen into the public domain, as they did with the um, the URAA, those are cases where I think people would have a similar type of legitimate claim, where they'd say, "Hey, wait a second! I acquired this chattel, this copy of a work, in a regime in which it was understood that I had the right to do whatever I wanted with it, and now all of a sudden you're coming in and imposing a new a new norm. You know, you're 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 in effect asserting somebody else's property rights in it." That, I argue, that looks very much like a taking, you know, a taking from the people who owned the chattels at the time that the URAA or the copyright term extension went into effect. And though it's been a long time since I taught nuisance law, in my recollection is that there, too, uh, with, you know, party neighbor and sleepy neighbor, we're going to ask questions about temporal development. How did these things develop over a course of time? Uh, because yeah. there are some cases where that turns out to do an awful lot, uh, have an awful lot of explanatory power about uh, what's reasonable and fair and what's a substantial interference. Well, that's, that's, the temporal dimension yeah. kind of keeps reemerging as you as you reflect on these um, 
uh, the way these uh, relations play out. And, and the Tahoe case actually held basically exactly that because all Tahoe decided was that there was not a per se taking under this case, Lucas, that we talked about earlier. Right. Rather, if there's a taking, it has to be put through the the, the balancing test of Penn Central, yeah. which considers exactly those kinds of factors, Joe. Yeah. And, and and exactly the kind of factors that, that you're talking about, Chris, right? I mean, yeah. in terms of like how, you know, is, is the case like um, – uh, you know, my loud parties have been okay for a long time, but now a, a new sleepy neighbor has moved in. But maybe sleepy neighbor is only ordinarily sleepy, and it's only from my good luck that I didn't didn't have someone who cared so much. In the same way, maybe we never knew that the lake was in danger, and now we have this huge collective action problem. You know, so it's that sort of thing that right. you can do that. But like, which of those cases it is, it seems to me highly kind of fact sensitive and the kind of thing you'd want to kind of grok through. Right. Yeah. yeah. So every claim of right that anybody tries to assert that curtails somebody else's liberty clearly is a contestable claim just under in basic normative principles, right? And so, and I, to some extent, my formal approach to this, you know, basically says, well, if something is already recognized as a valid claim in some other recognized protected interest, a claim that, you know, puts a duty on you not to engage in certain activities, the mere fact that that duty, some of the set of activities that you're precluded from doing involve things that you might do with things you otherwise own, that does not impinge your interest as property owner. I, I, I have to say, this is exactly what I love about this kind of scholarship, right? Is it, it, it gives us a new lens through which to get to the issues which are ultimately a matter of contest and politics and other things. It doesn't purport to resolve these questions, but, mm-hmm. but, te- but show, you know, going back to first principles and building up the problem in a new way and seeing it through new eyes it, it is a way that could change minds. I mean, it's a way that we could see the, the world differently. Because it helps you feel like you're talking about the thing that really matters. Like you're talking right. about the thing that's actually going to help you resolve. Okay. If we're going to, if we're going to engage in a, in a, in an enterprise about social life and the fact that not everyone's interests and needs can be satisfied and that coercion might come into play. Right. How are we going to make sure we're talking about the right aspects of this new situation to try to do right by everyone concerned? Exactly. And um, it enlarges your sense of that precisely because we always use formal models all the time. We, we all have formal tests for these things. It's, you know, even if they're not articulated. And when you're confronted like one with one like what Chris has come up with here, it's like, okay. This is a very detailed, formal model of how to think about these kinds of problems. It may not be the one that I'm using, but now that I think about it, I don't know the one that I'm using, right? <laughs> and, and so I, I need to think about these problems, you know, anew. And, and, and when I do so, I see exactly the kinds of conflicts in a new way that you, that you well, mentioned. Well, this is great. Joe. I'm glad that you guys find it useful. That's, to find uh, people who actually get it and find it useful is extremely uh, encouraging. But, um, you know, one thing that I found, and by the way, when I did this and I applied it to the copyright law, you know, one of the things that I found that sort of corroborated my view that this was a useful way to think about it is that, in effect, it sort of explains, if you will, why first sale doctrine has the contours that it does. Yep. Because if you if you apply my formal test, which is what I sort of do in the back end of the paper, and you go through each of the rights, I sort of argue, look, under my test, the reproduction right, the performance right, those aren't, those have nothing to do with asserting arbitrary preferences over somebody else's property. However, the distribution right and the display right are defined specifically as rights to tell somebody else what to do with a specific chattel, defined as a copy. And a co- so in other words, this does amount to those those do amount to, in effect, I term them, you know, appurtenant easements. 
In effect, what copyright law does is it says once any copy of a copyrighted work comes into existence, that chattel is subject to an easement. It's, it becomes, in effect, the servient tenement in an easement of which the work of authorship is the dominant tenement. And that gives the owner of the dominant tenement certain negative easements with regard to what can be done with that copy. That is, a, you know, and to the extent that we're worried about that because we don't like, generally, we don't tend to like servitudes on chattels, that's where first sale doctrine comes in and actually sort of cabins the potential scope of what the, how that easement plays out in practice. And so the fact that first sale doctrine applies precisely in those cases where my model would say this looks like a servitude sort of, you know, makes me feel like at least, um, you know, it, it, it's a useful way of, of getting at it because I'm getting to the right result, you know? Yeah, it's interesting because, of course, easements and covenants in, in real property law are like the analog of the narrow exceptions to broad privileges, right? And, and so that that idea of, uh, of that, there, that there's a problem if what someone else has done has come in and kind of replaced my preferences for the use of this property with theirs, or all they've done is taken away one specific um, manifestation of those preferences. This is like, you know, are they trying to control what I do with my ink and paper, or are they just taking away one thing I could do with my ink and paper? And exactly. and, and the easements and covenants in real property are exactly the kind of, you know, I'm still the owner of the property, but I have to let them cross with a car uh, mm-hmm. um, to get to the road, or I have to let them go to the lake and fish, or I have to do that. Right. Like, those are very specific carve-outs, right? And it's, yeah. and then it's always a matter of perspective. Is it a carve-out, or is it a predominant thing that you'd want to do with your property, which is being carved out? And that's the mm-hmm. social normative kind of cognitive, right. cultural But with easements, it's very clear that no matter, we don't even ask the question how significant a carve-out is it, if it's an easement that it's regarded as a taking of a use privilege, that, you know, you can only create easements with your consent or through prescription or something, you know, or by an eminent domain, all of which sort of presuppose that you have a vested entitlement, right? Yeah, yeah, that's true. I, I, it just, I, mean, I haven't really thought about this before in this way, but, but you know, this conversation makes me think that maybe that's that this sort of narrow versus broad construction is another reason that we read easements somewhat narrowly against the drafter over time, right? Um, precisely mm-hmm. because although you do have to volunteer voluntarily agree, they do run with the land and you know subject to notice, and so that right. the sense in which you volunteer becomes weaker over time because all you've done is brought brought right. uh, bought property. And so, well, that, see, yeah. I have a whole other paper. See, all the, you're making me realize. <laughs> it's interesting that you're making me realize how there actually is a sort of a logic to the stuff that I've written that I'm focusing <laughs> on the same, because I did an earlier paper which which delves into this precise issue about the natures of, of easements and specifically their transferability and the limits on their transferability. And again, in the context of a copyright issue, because there's this question about whether exclusive copyright licenses are presumptively transferable or not. And the argument that they are presumptively transferable simply is based on the idea that the text of the copyright statute lumps them in with a category of things that are termed transfers of ownership. And so some people run with that and say, well, if it's ownership, I must be allowed to transfer it. And I come back in this paper and I say, well, not so fast. There's different types of ownership. And an exclusive license isn't analogous to outright ownership, like fee simple ownership of land or ownership of a chattel. Rather, it's analogous to ownership of a sort of an easement. And easements aren't always necessarily presumptively transferable. That depends, right? And so, Do you regularly teach uh, the property law course? No, at George Mason, we have an embarrassment of riches in terms of people who teach. Pro- I have never taught property. It's funny. I'm like probably the only person whose scholarship 
does as much property theory and who's now serving as a, an associate reporter for the restatement project on property who has never taught property. <laughs> um, it's everyone else's loss, as far as I can tell. <laughs> this is that's one of the one of the special things about George Mason, right? I I think every one of you uh, professors at George Mason could teach property. Well, not quite, but it's true that it's you know it's a it's a topic that uh, a lot of people think is is important. Certainly, um, now I certainly do as as a teacher of property, and you know this idea of entitlement as underlying so many different things is uh yeah. is a broad concept, right? So if you're going to teach torts or contracts or what have you, there is, there's always property there. Yep. Oh yeah. Well, we got to wind, we got to wind it up, don't we, Joe? Yeah, we do. But Chris, this has been so fantastic. Absolutely. And I have a feeling we'll reconvene on some future occasion about some future paper. Well, you know, I would love whether or not you do a podcast on it. I definitely want your comments on this fair use paper that I've been talking about. I need to turn it around and I'll send it to you. That'd be great. Well, I, I, I just thank you for putting up with me. I'm, I, I don't know if you can tell I'm sick. And, no, uh, I couldn't and, tell. Well, you know that maybe I sound grumpier than normal, partly because I'm trying to <laughs> trying to breathe and and make it through the day. But um, <laughs> but, but 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 a bright side of the day has been having this chat and getting to read your paper today. I really really appreciate it. Well, thank you. There's no greater pleasure than having um, intelligent people who think your work is worth thinking and talking about. So you've given me that, and I thank you. Awesome. Thanks, Thanks. a bunch, Chris. Talk to you later. Bye.